Welcome, welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery, which is available now on Amazon or by going to russellbrand.com. Also, come see my rebirth tour, London, on the 31st of October and the 1st of November. Remember, of course, on the 1st of November, if you come to the Hammersmith Apollo, I'll be reading the book, Recovery, then answering questions. That's at 6.30. Then I go off and I come back out at 8pm and do a stand-up show. There's a few tickets left. It's a massive venue. I'd love you to come. Nottingham, 2nd of November. I'd love you to come to that. Coventry, 8th of November. Leicester Fame for November. I won't be reading no books there. Straight stand-up. If you like this show, subscribe to it, please. And review it on iTunes. Remember, we do this show out of sheer love. And actually, you get some money for these adverts. Not that much, though. And lots of free education. And this episode with Kai Hindi Andrews is absolutely brilliant. You're going to hear some mind-bending, mind-blowing stuff and walk away from it. Very, very well-educated and probably very sexy. Only five-star reviews, please. I'm very fragile. Now it's time for Under the Skin. You're listening to One of the Skin with Russell Brand. My guest today is Kaihindi Andrews, an author, an associate professor in sociology, and is also doing the first black studies degree anywhere in Europe at Birmingham City University. His research specialism is race and racism. He is director of the Centre for Critical Social Research, founder of the Organisation of Black Unity, and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. His contributed features to The Guardian and his new book, Black Radicalism, is out next year. Welcome, Kai. Hello. Thanks for having me on. It's really great that you come on. As you know, like the, uh, my motivation for doing these podcasts is because I'm at SOAS University. I've been doing a degree religion in global politics. And what I felt like the sort of uh, dilettante's glee at new information and then, like, when I was sort of getting given essays and stuff, I was thinking, hold on a minute, I could meet these people. I've, I've been on the telly. So this is part of that. This okay. is, in a way, it's like Make-A-Wish Foundation, <laughs> just for one <laughs> making one person's wishes come true. Um, so uh, one, we wanted to start around the area of empire b- mm. because uh, sort of national identity, uh, ethnocentric national identity in particular becoming very prevalent both in our country and America. wanted to talk to you about colonial nostalgia and would you explain what that term means and what this particular moment around Brexit and Trump, uh, if you've got any analysis on them, that like to, to kick us off with? Yeah, so I mean the term colonial nostalgia, it kind of refers to, if you look at the public discourse, particularly around Brexit, and the Vote Leave campaign and the idea that Britain is great and Britain can go back to the time it was great. Well, the time that Britain was great was when it was an empire, when it ruled over 25% of the world, when the colonies stretched out to the empire where the sun never sits. Mm. And that is the basis of, of Britain's wealth today. And that is kind of what people are looking back at. How do we go back to that colonial prestige of Britain, if you like? So when we say greatness, we mean tyranny, out an oppression. <laughs> Effectively, yeah. This is, this is what we're celebrating. And because we teach empire so badly, we don't really understand the horror. I mean, the British Empire killed more people than the Nazis. 
Uh, it was literally a form of fascism mm. um, that laid waste to whole, whole areas of the world and whole peoples of the world. Kai, if like a, an institution or nation killed more people than the Nazis and the main reason we think the Nazis are bad is because they killed so many people... Does that mean that the British Empire was worse than the Nazis? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, actually, the British Empire and the Nazis aren't separate in any way, shape or form. Ooh. There's a book that um, Bauman, sociologist called Bauman, wrote, where he's called Holocaust and Modernity. And actually, he argues that how we think about the Holocaust is though it's somehow alien. It's so mm. outside. It was so horrible. It could never possibly fit within our wonderful, enlightened society. But actually, in the book, he makes the argument that the West, modernity, capitalism, is the only society that could have produced the Holocaust. And the reason for that is racial science. When you think about the idea that the Jews aren't really people and we can prove they're not people through measuring and through science, mm. well, that, that's race. That's the same racism which produced slavery that says that you, I'm not fully a person and you can treat me like cattle. That's the same, same racism, the same science that proved the Jews were inhuman. And also, if you think about the, the amount of death that scientific process of death. There's nothing new about that for the Holocaust. I mean, Belgium, uh, they killed about 10 million people in the Congo. Uh, slavery wasted millions and millions of people. So in a sense, the Holocaust is like the, the logic of capitalism, just done to people we consider white. And so it becomes, oh, it's horrible. Right. right. I suppose two things. Yes, of course, it was done to people that were white. And also, I suppose, in terms of the trajectory, it was a... a, a, a in inverted commas, civilised country with people living civilised lives and the victims were civilised. So in a way, I suppose it reveals a lot about our presumptions around race of like you wouldn't even in a modern context, I mean contemporary context, consider that was the same. Yeah, but hold on a minute. They was all living in Africa and that. That's not as bad because they didn't have net curtains. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's the problem, right? So you see the logic of, of the Western imperialism in Europe, for white people, and then you see, actually, this is terrible. But actually, if you look, the Holocaust is, if you think of the Holocaust as being one of many imperial terrible things that happened, it's really not even in the top ten, right? Right, because it's the way that we categorise this information of like, you know, like, like as if there's a like a handicap, a system <laughs> applied. <laughs> These was white people, so that's the worst. Yeah. Then down it, like, does that? So, uh, you're obviously right. Thanks for illuminating me on that. Now, w w um. Uh, how is that idea progressing and and how do, is that perpetuating the idea of racial science and that term I know from school, necropolitics? How does that, how is that continuing now? Where is the, what's the front line of these arguments that uh, are the most evident, in the most evident form of slavery and Holocaust? How, what's the version of that that we're living with now? Yeah, so after the Holocaust and then people see like racial science is, is terrible and actually maybe we should move away from racial science. And before the Holocaust, it was just science. It wasn't racial science and it wasn't controversial, right? That was just what we all kind of agreed. But when you see that happen uh, to the Jews and see that the terror of it in Europe, we kind of abandon race. So you'll hear people will say race doesn't exist. Race is problematic. We should move away from the idea of race, uh, move to ethnicity. The problem is the way that we think about ethnicity is basically exactly the same way we thought about race. So there's different ethnic groups, but they're racialized. So I'm Caribbean, but then you lump in Caribbean with African on the black. Then you have Asian, which is Indian, Pakistani, etc. Then you have mixed. And even if you look at the um, census, the hierarchy of white to black is actually visually represented, right? It's white, Irish, and then it's Asian, 
then it's mixed, then it's black. And you see that actually the way we talk about ethnicity still says that black people may not be inferior because of biology anymore. We're inferior because of our culture, because of our language, because of our traditions, because we haven't got any history. So it's, it's, just a, it's just a different version of the same thing. That's interesting. So power, you say, mutates, uh, but doesn't often accede. You know, like it's like, oh, we can't do it in that way anymore, but here's a new way. Yeah, exactly. And think about, um, if you think about what's, what's, what's racism really fundamentally about, it's about creating a system that says you have Europe, white at the top, you have Africa, black at the bottom, and there's various gradations in between. And that is actually what global politics looks like today. It's not a coincidence that the poorest countries in the world are in Africa and the richest countries in the world are European, West, white countries. That's, like, that's how it was designed 500 years ago and that is exactly how it is today. What possible other argument could there be other than previous colonial exploitation? Some actual meritocracy. Is that the actual argument of like, no, no, white Europe, it's more advanced, it's different, and Africa is primitive? Well, that's how it's maintained. If you think about, are you doing a degree at SOAS, and obviously international relations and international development? I've I've been going around to a lot of places recently and saying, well, actually, what, what are they teaching you in international development? They're teaching you how to underdevelop parts of the world. I mean, there's a whole, a whole colonial education system. is isn't just about Britain. It's about the elite from Africa, Caribbean, Asia coming into Europe and learning about economic policies, political ideas, which are actually there in place to continue the oppression of their, of their country. So you have this idea that you can develop the, the global south through um, aid and through technology and through et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we've missed the point that actually these places of the world are poor because the West is rich. Mm. That was the same then as it is today that, that hasn't changed in any way shape or form it's integral i suppose isn't it that that story is concealed because it is at odds with the assumption of justice and merit that is required to maintain a power balance yeah exactly i actually talk about whiteness as being more like a psychosis than like anything else right the idea of whiteness and progress and civilization etc cetera, etc cetera, the ideas in the enlightenment that europe it's kind of the civilizing mission that spreads out truth to the world. That's that's not rational. I mean, there's no rational basis to that, right? Yeah. Because um, there's a lot of, I don't know if you read any critical whiteness studies, um, people like David Rodiger and um, Noling Natiev, who talk about the idea that you can kind of teach out whiteness. If only white people would understand the problem historically, then they'd change and become allies and we'd all be happy families. Actually, I argue it's much, much, much more serious than that. That the reason you have this myth of progress, etc., is because that within the political economy, the West needs to exploit the rest. And so what we do is we have this psychosis which says, actually, no, no, it's all right, it's fine, we're doing a good job, etc., etc. And that's to hide the fact that actually that we're really living on the back of children dying. I mean, that's what we're doing, right? Children die because of the system which gives us money. And so because we can't deal with that mentally, emotionally, we create these myths about how wonderful the world is. Right, so it's like a a psychosis that has to conceal its essence in order to perpetuate. And even a sort of a little while ago on that uh, TV uh, online news blog I do, we did an episode on like literal kids mining for some resource for your mobile phone. So it made a very sort of clear connection between here we are in the West, ordinary people that don't feel like we've got blood on our hands, but in our handheld device is like, here he is, he's seven years old, he's got to go down. <laughs> oh no, it's like abhorrent and doesn't, yeah. you feel like it doesn't belong in your understanding of the contemporary world. Now one of these things about whiteness is power, obviously I as a white person that feel like I have certain 
attitudes towards the state and that my sense of alliance and allegiance would be countercultural. How am I categorized by uh, like in the terms of this new emergent narrative around power and oppression? Uh, it's interesting because this whole discussion about like white allies and how I had this, I had this, I was at Oxford yesterday talking about this and sometimes I feel a bit like a stand-up comedian where mm. you kind of go around and you play the little, you play the audiences and you get different reactions and you test out your material. It's good because I feel like an academic because when you said I've done this at Oxford, I thought, good, I'm already at the same level as Oxford <laughs> University with my questions. <laughs> but it was good because they actually, this question of whiteness came up, you know, like, what can white people do? Where do white people, what, what can we do to solve the problems, et cetera? And it's it's a tricky question because if you take my idea, if you take what I'm arguing here, that whiteness is a psychosis, that it's and, and, and psychosis are irrational. So, and actually in the left, you can see this as much as you can see it on the right. So you have left wing people, SWP Marxists, mm. who will make these global arguments about X Y Z. Who will say they're on the side of the oppressed, but actually when you look at what they're saying, they're they're, they're just as deluded as the as the right wing fascists, because mm. whiteness as a concept is so important. And I give you an example. Um, at, so anybody, anybody who's black and goes, and goes to black events in the African Caribbean community, the SWP, uh, Socialist Workers Party, they're more prevalent than the police. I mean, they come every, they're always there, and they're always there peddling Marxism, Marxism, Marxism. And I'm, I quite like Marxism, by the way. But one of these events, there was a, it was a few years ago, there was a strike of South African farm workers, and the teachers were also having a strike here. And in this kind of Marxist, we're all the working class, we're all workers, we're all in the same struggle, etc., etc. They were saying that we had to support, we couldn't just support the workers in South Africa, we had to support the teachers, right? But let's think about this for a second. Workers in South Africa, farm workers, are poor. They're so poor because of trade policies that benefit British farmers and European farmers, our farmers, effectively. And that impoverishes them, it, mar- it marginalizes them, and their conditions are uh, conditions that we could never even contemplate, right? Now, teachers are paid out of taxation from that very system uh-huh. which exploits South African farmers. So when, we're, when teachers are asking for better pensions and better pay, what they're asking for is, a better, is more fruits from the exploitation of places like South Africa. So in no way, shape or form, are these two people together. Actually, they're opposed, completely opposed. Because teachers, anybody, myself as well, we make our money off their exploitation. And that's the psychosis of whiteness. Because you can't understand that actually you're part, we are, all of us here are part of the problem, not necessarily the solution. But when you have a systemic contradiction such as that one within which your participation is involuntary, other than like I've literally, I'm out of the system now, like how do you avoid that and how can't alliances be formed on that basis? Like I was thinking then, if you think of, uh, power like you know like i thought i thought was brilliant that that oj documentary mm-hmm. when it to used like they it, i thought that they used that oj simpson documentary to tell a story about race in the united states of america stories about crime stories about commerce capitalism uh, uh racial tension i mean really in a way that i could understand told me a lot of important stories and a lot of it was about uh, oj simpson's racial identity at, at a time when the civil rights movement people were making huge sacrifices muhammad ali was like you know like, a sentence and gave up his belt and all of that stuff but like there was an interesting moment where it said well what why does oj simpson because he is uh, an african-american man have the obligation to be uh, like you know, you, well, you've got to white, like you would know white athlete or white star would have that obligation, would be expected to carry that mantle. So it may, began to sort of challenge what 
whiteness and blackness mean as a sort of categorization system so like if like you know what this distinction i I see there is a historic colonial and indeed contemporary Mm -hmm. continuation of these themes and categories but but there there is a sort of a crossover isn't there because like say barack obama as the when he was the president of the united states he was an african-american man but he is in the set, if you use that argument about the South African farmers and the teachers, mm-hmm. he is the you know he's the president over Ferguson. How does that all work? Yeah, I mean that, and this is part of the thing with um, psychosis. Is I don't say look, it's what, what psychosis isn't just for white people in any way, shape, or form. Black people, many, many, many black people would also kind of embrace this kind of psychosis, right? I was one of the most critical people, still am one of the most critical people of Barack Obama's presidency. You have a black president. After eight years, literally every single indicator apart from employment uh, for black people went down. And even if you look at employment, black wages went down so much that actually employment was basically irrelevant. Mm. And so you think then, well, what, what, what have we achieved? What, what's achieved by this? Mm. And actually the celebration of Obama, particularly by African-Americans and, and black people here, and my mom cried when mm. Obama was elected. That's part of that psychosis, right? That we think things are changing when actually if you look at the evidence, it suggests that none of these things are actually changing. Mm. And in many ways, they're getting, they're getting worse. So then what's the value of that as a category if it is ultimately, as you said, literally meaningless? In what sense is he an African-American president other than like he's able to say you know how he felt in shops and that kind of stuff and like you know like things you think oh bloody hell this is sort of amazing and a fist bump other than sort of literally superficial which i suppose is sometimes what i think race ought be in a utopia (laughs) like in like a superficial uh monikers what was the value and meaning of it would you say that there really wasn't any uh no there was so there you'll find some academics who will be very critical of obama but say well look it's limits of what you could do. That's the problem. We just move on. It's not that big a deal, right? I'd, <laughs> take the, I'd, take the, I'd, I'd actually take the opposite approach and say that the, the symbolism of Obama, the point of Obama's blackness, one of the reasons why he got elected was because part of to aid this idea of this psychosis, was to aid this idea of the American dream. For me, Barack Obama's blackness is violence in itself. Go on. Because... What does it do? What is so? What is so? Like my mom's crying. My mom was a radical in the, in the in the sixties and had all these politics about revolution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And she's there crying on um on on the day this very neoliberal politician who never offered one single thing to black. Never said he was going to do anything for black people. But we just kind of assume because he's black, this is going to happen. Yeah. Something right. And then you see afterwards, everybody's kind of praising the symbol. You've got a black um, family in the White House and Obama with young black men and. But actually get beneath that symbol. What's that trying to do? That's trying to tell you that things have progressed, that things yeah. have changed, that there's, there's progress is being made. But again, look at every single indicator that tells you that for black people, particularly in America, things are getting worse, probably not better. And so the symbol of Obama and why his blackness, how he used his blackness and why he got one of the reasons he got elected is because it, it keeps us more deluded and tied into a system which can never provide us freedom, justice or equality. People will hate being told that story, I fancy... Uh, probably <laughs> yeah it's not the most popular way to put things but it's also the truth right that's right so that that that, that type of critique we say no let's not get distracted by what appears attractive and what appears beautiful and promising look at how power is actually behaving yeah. so uh, like to return to my prior point about like how do i as a white person from a working class background whose attitude has always been 
anti like look at me reaching for my little slice of the pie <laughs> like, like um like a, like how do i um participate what like how do i uh, like who's like when i when you say that about the british empire right i sort of think like god yeah it's all built on like biscuit tins with union jacks on it and land and open glory and like they're over the butchering people in india and africa and doing whatever was required and and nation was always a front for corporations anyway and the whole thing's been a blag yeah. right i'm on board so like how do we have alliances that aren't caught up in sort of bureaucracies such as that teacher south african farmer alliance how do we go well let's let the radical white folk in they'll be of some use or is it like can it not work and this is the part of the material which I'm testing out and isn't maybe the best because I'm a big Malcolm X fan. I love Malcolm X. And Me and all, yeah. if that's all right with <laughs> you. Yeah, no, more, more than Maria. <laughs> um, Malcolm, there's a story in autobiography where Malcolm, a, a white lady comes to ask Malcolm, similar question, what can white people do? And he basically turns around and says, nothing, and then walks off. Right. Oh. And he feels bad about it. That's a burn. Off Malcolm X anyway. Probably a bit nervous. He's an intense guy. <laughs> and she was crying and she was really upset. And he felt bad about it. He was like, okay, I shouldn't have said this. Mm. Actually, white people have the responsibility to go into white communities and make these these arguments. Um, I can't really advance much more than that. Look, what, one of the things that Malcolm used to do was just to go around and tell white people, literally, they were devil. I mean, he'd say, evil. Like, what, look what you've done. Look at this critique. Um, and I guess as a, as a black, scholar and activist that's the most i can do i don't know if i can have the answer to what what you can do other than to prove the critique wrong i would love to be wrong but actually if, if i'm looking historically presently currently at the left as well as the right i don't see how you break out of that psychosis that's why i call it a psychosis because it's completely irrational there is nothing you can do to penetrate it and actually my my i guess my my work is more about what do we do as black people and how do we organize of course that must be isn't it like how i would have a personal allegiance around like addiction or whatever because that's where that's just what i've been drawn to through my mm. particular wound like uh, uh, and that's where i feel oh, i know the score on that yeah. so i can be relevant and i can be useful in yeah. that area i can't go around camp- campaigning on behalf of a, a group that i don't share the experience of um but what i feel like and pure conjecture of course given the nature of what i've just said might be the solution or my question is is it not that we whether these categorize these categorizations are um wherever we find ourselves within that sort of that that peculiar color chart Mm -hmm. uh, like oughtn't we be denying the category like a super uh, transcending the categories not denying what the narrative is yeah. like i'm going like and was and has has happened and I, i'm aware of it now in the industries i work in i when i'm at meetings around television i think well we're all white still like, you know like you know like i'm sort of aware of that into yeah. like and um but like what's and that's sort of super relevant and but what i'm interested in is that as long as our identity c- continues to reiterate those categories, even if it's through overthrowing them, mm-hmm. aren't we continuing somehow to augment them by like, you know, like that by saying, well, no, this is our story and this is what it is. I completely accept yeah. the importance of it, but how do we ever go, right? We don't want it anymore. We don't want power to work in that way. How do we challenge it and dismantle it? If we are uh, wedded or welded somehow to our categories. Yeah. And I think this is, there's, um, I think it really does. It's really about taking on board this critique in a very serious way. And I don't think the left, and I'm saying the left as a general thing, but, you know, people on the left, Marxists, other academics have done this in, in this sense. So, for example, if you look at mobilizations like um, 
occupied, mm. occupied Wall Street. We're the 99%. I'm sorry, that's an, that's an offensive way to look at global, at global inequality. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're in, if, you're, if you earn the average wage in Britain, you're in something like the top 4% of earners in the entire world. Wow. Just recognizing that the conditions that we, and not just white people, black people, all of us, right, mm. have here, are, put us in a completely different situation to the conditions of people in the third world. So, for example, there was recently a child bereavement in our, in our family of circle of friends because of a car accident. And two years later, everybody's still shocked by it and they're still shook by it because it's, it's so foreign. But actually, in many parts of the world, children just die all the time. I mean, a child dies every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food. So what that means is we're protected from that, the, the horrors of the system. So for us to pretend that we're all in this one big happy family of workers, that, that needs to go. I mean, if you can take one thing, let's just take that out of, the, out, of the, out of the equation completely and understand that all of us here, and me included, are complicit in this system and benefit from this system. Yes. But I don't think you see that in much of the, of the left, unfortunately. That would be a starting point. And maybe you can build a proper politics after that. A sort of awakening, yeah. I, I, like what you uh, said there, like that. There's that famous Orwell quote, you know, the British working class is in India. You yeah. know, like, so, um, but when I was on Bill Maher the other day, and like it's sort of, uh, you know, they uh, very much romanticise uh, uh, Obama, and like they're very much like you know, like the opening. I like Bill Maher, you know, but the opening jokes were very much about. Um, you know, sort of, oh, yeah, well, you know, you're not a president like about it. It was sort of very romantic and nostalgic and all of that. And, and then the subsequent conversation was, again, sort of about intricacies of, the, you know, the Democratic Party and the way they elect candidates. And I thought, this is the why you have Trump is because this is this doesn't appeal to people on a visceral level. It, you've, you're not addressing the inability of conventional politics to tell a truthful, open, clear story. Um. So how does politics have to alter? It's safe for us, like, you know, how do you end up in it? Like, like, because I think both Brexit and Trump, I, I see them more as failures of the left or failures of progressive, truly progressive thinkers, as opposed to triumphs for the right. Yeah. So what, what is the obligation of progressive, if, even if you don't use the word terms like left and right, because I can see how they're becoming problematic and somewhat redundant, and they are part of the problem, I reckon. But like, Well, in, in many ways, the um, Trump and Brexit are a response to the logic of the left as well, in some ways. If you have this national politics that says, look, how do we get the most we can for the working class in the UK or the working class in America, which unfortunately a lot of the left has done, then being anti-immigrant... And being a bit racist makes sense. I mean, that's a logical thing. That's a logical thing to do. And that is, that's the history of the left, particularly in Britain as well. So, I, I, really, I mean, really, you think about the uh, trade unions, think about, like, people always say, let's go back to social democracy. My family came to this country under social democracy. There were colour bars, couldn't get taught in school. What does that mean, colour bars? Uh, so you weren't, um, weren't allowed to join the trade union, weren't allowed to go um, into this association, couldn't live in this area, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, under social democracy, the racism that we're experiencing now and saying, oh, this is terrible, it was like five times worse, right? right. Left-wing, social democracy, working class, and the racism was far more severe on an open level than it is, than it is today. So in some ways, these aren't, Trump and Brexit aren't, aren't, aren't alien to the left at all. It's like if even Corbyn got criticised because he never really came out about Brexit and because there is this strong left-wing argument mm. that you kind of, you know, you want to protect wages, et cetera, et cetera. Because a lot of the left is framed around the nation state, right? How do you protect British workers? How do you protect American workers, etc.? And so what we need to do for the left is to have a much more radical approach to politics. And it's not like this never happened. So if you look at uh, people like Eric Olin Wright, 
a neo-Marxist uh, who wrote um, wrote worked at the Black Panthers, American uh, neo-Marxist in the seventies. Um, Emmanuel Wallerstein talks about world systems theory. So there is there is theory that says, look, we need to basically divest of our privileges in the West and really understand our our place in the global system. That works there. Unfortunately, it hasn't it hasn't necessarily worked to influence how politics works. What do you mean divest of privilege? I didn't like the sound of that at all. <laughs> so it is about, it's about acknowledging. So example, I, as a black man, for example, I have to understand that I don't suffer most of the symptoms of racism, right? I, I'm not unemployed. I don't get hassled by the police. I have high education. I, have, I, I am one of the most people in the country, right? So I have to understand that I am in a privileged position. And I have to understand also that because I'm in that, that, that where that privilege comes from, it comes from the exploitation of people that look like me, which means that I then have to build a completely different politics that says, how do, how, do, how do we relate to the least of us, in a sense? How do we draw this global idea about um, child deaths and politics around the world, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and understanding that I, to do this, I'm going to have to give up my privilege. And this is what people don't want to do, right? This is why the, probably the limit, this is probably why it will never work, because for us in the West to really have a radical politics, it would mean we have to give up our privileges. And to what extent are people willing to do that? I suppose the power structures that perpetuate are dependent on our unwillingness to give up comfort. If if people had a sort of a more spiritual, what would I want to say, attitude towards asceticism, if people were kind of hardened to the idea of, no, I know what's right, and you're not going to beguile me with your iPhones. If, if like, but it's very, very hard to get there. A couple of times a week, I think, would I be more happy if I was to fill my house with people who were refugees so that I didn't, and it, like, what would my sum total of happiness go up? I'd certainly be spending less time reflecting on, well, I shouldn't really be having this privilege should i you know like, but much more time going bloody hell who blocked the toilet or whatever it would be that day you know like so like but it, requ- it requires that uh, gandhi did this wicked speech about where he said like you know there's no point in us overthrowing the british then replacing them with a comparable system uh, you might have heard this given that you are <laughs> to each degree courses in racial <laughs> politics like so but then a bit where he goes like you know the fact is it comes down to the idea of our attitudes towards comfort as long as we are addicted to comfort then it's really hard on some level on a personal level you have to go like this is where this isn't theory this is where this isn't something you read about books go am i prepared to give up my iphone would i be happier if i had less stuff on on some level i sort of feel i would be and what prevent there's a kind of fear though indeed that prevents me from going right i'm just going to walk out into because i suppose my personal privilege and wealth is what i feel protects me from this system and from this world yeah, and I, I can see why people are, aren't, right, you know, people know who wants to give up stuff, right? Mm. And and particularly if you're working class, particularly if you're black, um, you, there's discrimination, right? So we're, we're seeing that there's clearly unequal, it's clearly not fair, and we feel badly treated as well. So that's also part of the problem that says, well, actually, well, why am I going to give up this? I've worked quite hard to get it as well. But unfortunately, that's the, that's the reality. Huey Newton, uh, the Black Panthers, uh, wrote a book, um, Revolutionary Suicide. And he said, this is what revolution is about, understanding that you have to be able to give up for those people who are who are less than. I mean, this is why I have very little faith in this happening in Europe. And in the fact, the, the concept I always talk about as a radical concept is, is blackness. Because it's my blackness. It's the way that I look. It's the, it's the, it's the hair. It's the, that's a connection to people who are at the literal bottom. 
So when we talk about the child that dies every 10 seconds, the vast majority of those are in Africa, right? Mm. So that gives me a connection that you don't, that you don't necessarily have, right? No. And that should give me a connection that I should have. And that should tie me into a politics and remind me this is a global struggle, not a national struggle, which is why I have a bit more faith in those kind of, those kind of black movements than I would have in, in, in Western European movements, I guess. If, however, the only people that care about that exploitation and, you know, even in the most severe forms such as child death are people that have a visible and cultural identification with it. And even then it remains theoretical. And I don't know what to what degree you're involved in activism. Like, but like, you know, how is anything going to change? In fact, it seemed to me that until you get to that point, that Huey Newton point about like self-sacrifice, which is a really martyrdom is an idea that, again, is resourced from theology you know it's like how how without a spiritual component is radical radical change going to occur because how do human beings access ideas such as oneness true fraternity transcendence uh, relinquishing individual identity through social and cultural like or, 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 or material forms like how do you go you know because it doesn't have yeah. the um, necessary potency it's not emotive enough it doesn't seem yeah, I mean, there's, there's two parts. I mean, one, I think in terms of, you look at the black struggle and, and that kind of global politics, there are people like Franz Fanon uh, will talk about the idea, he was, uh, he was a Martinican um, post-colonial theorist, and he'll talk about that, that you need the sleeping beauty of the European working class to wake up, basically, and you need those allies to have this 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 revolution. Even the Panthers would, would have said this because they were Marxists. Um, because of, like you said, that you need to have this almost spiritual, it's, it's something beyond just rationality. It's something mm. more than yes. that. This is why I say it's probably never going to happen, right? One, we have a system which has always protected the Western working class, always from the worst exploitation, uh, provided comfort and wealth and provided a, an, a, an outlet. So look at the left now. They're saying, look, can we just get a, bi- a bigger share of the pie? Not yeah. can we change global poverty? Can we get a bigger share of the pie? Yeah. And so I'd be unlikely to see that happen. But, can you see that kind of more emotional, if you like, theological, spiritual in this concept of blackness? This is why I'd argue, yeah, that's, that's, that's a potential possibility. And rather than wait and try and get the allyship of people who I don't think we're ever going to have, we have massive allyship, let's just go with what we have and organize what we have and produce a movement that can actually, this, that by itself would be enough to destabilize and, and, and kick the bucket a little bit. I see. That's, that's good. But it's for me, it's, it's somewhat entrenchant precisely because of its inability to transcend systems of categorization that have been previously established by the power dynamic that you seek to overthrow. Well, no, because that's the thing about, about blackness. I mean, in some ways that you can say, and this is the critique that we get a lot, this is racial categories that are all from Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But actually blackness is the concept I'm talking about. It's really the opposite to race. I mean, race is about biology. It's about hierarchy. It's about Europeans looking at us and saying, you are not really human. Blackness is us looking at each other and going, okay, we've we've got the same African background, we've got that descent. Uh, we're seeing these Europeans who are doing these terrible things. They're trying to categorize us in this way, and we're going to reject that. So yes. blackness isn't about hierarchy, isn't about biology, isn't about genetics. It's about saying there's a shared a shared meaning of of color. There's a shared meaning of politics, and we we come together and organize um, in order to benefit the community. But it doesn't have those elements of race, so it's a different concept for me. I understand. Um, now, I want to shift to the idea of reparations because it's sort of, I suppose, it's a practical idea. Can you uh, talk to us about that? That if Western wealth is founded on colonialism, that there could be uh, redemptive measures. What is that idea? 
Um, yeah, so if basically if you look through historically, it's very clear and very obvious that the wealth of the West is built on slavery, colonialism and genocide, like very clear. If you just take slavery, for example, I mean, slavery is about 300 year system. Uh, places like Britain, America, Europe, it's literally built off the back of it. Parts of London, Liverpool wouldn't really exist. Glasgow in Scotland, Scotland likes to get off the hook with slavery, but my surname's Andrews. So they should tell you everything <laughs> you need to know about slavery and Scotland. Um, and if uh, Birmingham even, because Birmingham's not a port, we get we tend to get away as well from some of this slavery stink, if you like. But the Industrial Revolution, James Watt, Matthew Bolton, they were all heavily involved in slavery. Were they? M- took lots and lots of money from slavery. I don't know none of this. Really? What? So if you think about the Industrial Revolution, which is typically seen to be the, the marker of the West, right, yeah. and how progressive it is and science, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the first real commodity that was made in Industrial Revolution was cotton. There ain't no cotton growing in Britain, right? I mean, they don't grow cotton. They get, cotton was in the Americas, it was in the Caribbean. And so it was that, that commodity and that wealth from, from the cotton industry, which was from the slave trade, which really gets reinvested back into the Industrial Revolution, and therefore you're able to have the rest of the progress, et cetera, et cetera. So the money that you needed to have something like the Industrial Revolution is, is 100% tied up into, into slavery. So yeah. that's why, I mean, Birmingham, for example, made I think some, some large proportion of all the guns and all the shackles that were used in the entire slave trade. We only made the guns and shackles. <laughs> yeah. We were barely involved. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, British ships, um, British, even things like um, finance capitalism, insurance starts with the slave trade. Lloyds of London, who celebrated, I think it was 400 years anniversary the other day, the CEO comes on TV and says, we're happy to have our roots in the, insuring the merchant trade. And what she meant was literally the slave trade. That's how they talk about slave trade in, 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 in Lloyds of London, the merchant trade. <laughs> <laughs> it's great when you psychosis. They were referring to it sort of nostalgically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ah, when Lloyd's began, it were just a few ships transporting, <laughs> we'll call them goods. <laughs> That's amazing. It's better. So you can see like, the roots of our financial institutions, our cities. I mean, it, every, you probably couldn't have much of the wealth that we have today without, without slavery. Capitalism, I suppose, you know, like one component, you know, it, like, you know, sort of creating excess value, excess worth. So anything you can do to reduce overheads like you know like we found ways of reducing overheads that you nick stuff from other countries get other people to work for no money at all and that's really that's the, the all the lion and the unicorn and the land and yeah. the hope of glory it's that's what it yeah, conceals i mean that's 100 percent what it what it does conceal and so if you think about reparations in america most of this work has been done in america and they've tried to calculate um on pretty strong legal precedents so 300 years of unpaid labour. You just work out what the labour would have been, what the cost would have been, what people should have got paid for the work that they did. Um, and then there's also precedence around trauma and abuse. So, for example, for the Holocaust we talked about earlier, Germany's paid out about like 90 million or something. Like that. Oh. There's a number, there's a, maybe more than that. Germany's actually paid out reparations for the harm that was caused. Right. So if you say these two categories and say that you've got to pay for unpaid labour, you've got to pay for trauma. Uh, in the States, they reckon it's anywhere between 4.9 and 15.6 billion trillion sorry trillion dollars that's owed to african-americans it would essentially unravel that nation that system as we know it that's why it can't be countenanced or discussed because you can't have the united states of america now like again we're framing it economically and i read this wicked thing off of this uh native american he called himself or maybe even called himself indian i can't remember like uh, like activist and he said all these sort of systems you lot come up with marxism capitalism they're all sort of your ideas going into none of them like with that we have a completely different framework for understanding reality but like and, and 
you can see that with something like reparation, that what it begins to do is unravel a, a national identity. It was curious, I thought, in that James Baldwin documentary where he goes that the whole category of Negro is re required in order for uh, the dominant power, uh, the, the, the dominant power, I don't know, sort of force to have a, a, another identity to cast its shadow onto. That that category is created in order for whiteness to prevail, not only economically, but also kind of psychologically. Because in a way, economics is a sort of an external system that comes from somewhere, and, it, and as for all forms of categorization must. That they're these, like I suppose one of the things that we're arguing is that there is no essence to categorization. These are external forms that are retrospectively applied, except for that moment where you talked about blackness as having some veracity in terms of visual identification. But I, w I was saying then that... Um, that how like with that reparation argument you can't like it's in a sense like what what would happen if they, well, like if you pursue that where does that go you know yeah well I guess this is this is the the cul-de-sac of reparations I find. is that the way to put it I don't know so look, logically there's no real argument against reparations you look mm -hmm. at also you look at so people will talk about oh it was a long time ago things have passed etc etc yeah. but actually the effects are still very 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 clear not just for the descendants of the enslaved but also in Africa I mean just depopulating Africa to that extent alone has had a huge negative impact on the economy so you can see the effects of slavery is still there um, reparations were paid to the slave owners. Imagine that they actually gave reparations to the slave owners because there was that oh, wow. was, there was that much money involved. They were like, "We have to give you some money, all right?" We're so sorry, you're <laughs> losing your slaves. This <laughs> must be a terrible hardship. Exactly. <laughs> there was a UCL University College London just did a legacy of British slavery project, and they've traced where the it's equivalent of two billion pounds that went to the British owners of slaves at, at emancipation went. And you can see it's in the church, it's in the middle class, it's in David Cameron's family. Wow. It's literally throughout, throughout the economy. So it's, it's very clear there's a problem and there needs to be restitution paid for that problem. But you're right, though, when you start to add up these numbers, I mean, if it's 15 trillion in the, in the States, what would that be for the UK? You're talking about, you can't, it's actually impossible, it's literally impossible for the West to pay this kind of sum of money. It would, yes. destroy, the, it would destroy West. It, would destroy it means capital, there right? is no West. In order to do it, it means that the West has to dismantle itself. The power... In fact, don't all arguments about power reach this nexus that... Well, in order for the power to respond correctly, it would have to dismantle itself. Whether you're, say, you're talking about a transnational corporation, if you're talking about Lloyd's, Lloyd's, in order to behave rationally and acknowledge its origins, would have to not be Lloyd's anymore. Yeah. Or GM Motors, for that time, they were putting out cars they knew were going to catch fire, but it worked out cheaper to let it happen. <laughs> you know, the, the only sort of possible response is for them not to be. So the systemic changes required are so absolute that they, in a sense, defy the dynamic. Because it's like that if if you say right america britain colonial former colonial or colonial nations have to repay to but they, and what i feel like is that transference of wealth to africa if it, unless there is systemic change all you have now is now some yeah. dominant forces within africa behave in that way yeah. and in a way isn't it a bit of a red herring in that it's sort of i sometimes think is it still just happening like i sort of very simplistic and reductive but bloody hell what did you expect when you came on here like like sort of my argument is a bit like that 
people, it sort of it goes a bit like this, right? You can't have slavery no more. People have like it's bothering too many people. Like that have got influence. Okay, but what we can have is we'll pay people the absolute bare minimum. There'll be a subjugated underclass. You know what I mean? So things just move on. Like if power finds a way of remanifesting itself continually and making the minimum uh, compromises. Yeah, which is why I think this is why I think the the, the power of the reparations argument you follow it through to its logical conclusion tells you that the problem is irresolvable within our political and economic system and this is where you need to have a radical change and actually what we should be arguing is for revolution like the change you need to have the restitution needs to be made cannot be made in this uh, again to quote malcolm x uh, this system is um it's impossible to have freedom justice and equality for black people in the same way that it's impossible for a chicken to lay a duck egg it's just not meant to happen right and once we realise that, we'll start thinking of much bigger solutions to our problems. That's the power for me. That's the power of the reparations argument to tell yeah. you how how is embedded in the system. It is actually quite is. brilliant. Yeah, it is because it leads you to the point of going, yeah, but hang on a minute. If you did that, there would be no America, and then that tells you, oh, yeah. America is therefore yes. built on it. Exactly, and that's the problem. So let's think about different solutions. And when you talk about power manifesting and, ch- and giving concessions, this is kind of what we see with the reparations debate. So if CARICOM, which is a Caribbean collection of Caribbean countries, are currently arguing for reparations. And they're, they've kind of stopped asking for money now. It's about, can we get some development aid? Can we get an apology? Can we get some <laughs> education? No, 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 no. Well, we'll do the apology, quietly. <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's a different set of demands. A set of demands that the West could do, right? It's not impossible. They could do this. And then it could absolve them of their guilt to say, well, look, we, we apologise. We give you this development aid. We wiped off third world debt. But actually, it didn't change the problem. The problem is still there. The issues are still there. The structures are still there. So you can actually do reparations in a way that makes things worse, not better, unfortunately. Yes, I see. But it's like it's one of those threads that if you pull at it, things fall apart. It makes me... You're right. So what kind of... What are you going to spend the rest of your... I mean, you might not know. But what what, what are your <laughs> most immediate objectives in terms of bringing about change where do you like now that you know all this stuff now that you're teaching all this stuff in your position you're in what are you going to do um so i think in terms of the book i'm that's coming out next year black black radicalism is a a manifesto of theoret- theoretically but also practically to say well actually what does black radicalism mean what does this politics do what does it lead us to and what it leads us to is to an organization that transcends a nation state that connects us to the poorest and the most abject in our condition and says actually let's work on building revolution and mm. so it's kind of built on. Um, so when Malcolm X, you, I probably mentioned Malcolm like ten more times before we before we finish. When Malcolm dies, he's working on the organization of Afro American unity, and he says this organization is the, is the revolutionary organization because you have a, a you have a a place here, you have a place in New York, a place in Caribbean, a place in Jamaica, a place in um, Ghana, a place in all over the world, and then you connect this organization together, and now you've got that kind of unity and solidarity across borders that can actually have a proper revolutionary change. So this is the word I'm trying to do currently. Hey, what do you think is uh, the significance of Malcolm X's Islam? In, in what sense do you mean? Well, like he was a Muslim. He was a like a proper core <laughs> yeah, Muslim. Yeah, I mean, he was a devout, devout Muslim. So, like um, that's like you because you're coming at him from the angle of being a a black man in England, 2017. Mm-hmm. Like, like isn't he as much? Or could it be argued that he's a, a Muslim icon as well as a African American or black icon? And, um, and how do those categories intersect, particularly in a climate where Islamophobia is so present? Yeah, so I think Malcolm that being good question came out of nowhere. <laughs> Malcolm being a Muslim is a it's not incidental, right? And actually, Malcolm's what when Malcolm becomes really radical. So Malcolm's in the Nation of Islam 
for about 13, about 13 years when he comes out of prison and it transforms him. But the Nation of Islam is very much a religious organisation in that it says that the solution to black people's problems is to become Muslim. And that's kind of it. You just become Muslim and there's a prophecy where God's going to wipe away all the white people and we'll be fine. So all you need to do is be a Muslim, right? And this is the, that's, that's the kind of religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or whatever else, that you don't want to have, basically, because it limits you. You don't really do anything. You just pray. And eventually Malcolm leaves because he sees the limits of yeah. that. And he, beco- and he becomes, um, I think he's Sunni, Sunni, Sunni Muslim. He goes yeah, to, he goes, he does Hajj and all yeah, that. Yeah, he goes to Hajj. He goes to, he goes to Mecca. He has, a, he has a, a different kind of Islam. And he becomes, in many ways, more devout. So he, he finds the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. But very clearly in the Battle of All the Bullets speech in 64, he says, starts off a speech, says, look, I'm a Muslim, but you need to leave your religion at home. Keep your religion between you and your God. Because this, this is not what we're talking about. When we do this organization work, this is black people stuff. And you can be whatever religion you want to be, but that has no impact on the politics. So Malcolm makes a very, very clear separation. Do you think that was a political move, knowing that there was such an entrenched Christianity within the black population in America at that time and he didn't want to cause well, a rift in that way? But I think it's also important philosophically because I think he's, saying, he's just saying, look, religion is, that, that's, religion is something that makes you connect to the world and makes you, gives you spirituality and make, gives you something personally. Religion is not something that can solve any of our problems on earth. Yeah, but that's, to me, mate, is the big uh, argument of secularism, that religion is a private matter, do it at home, do it in your own. In your, whereas I think of like spirituality, if not religion, because it's such a hot potato, uh, as having the motivational power to bring about the kind of revelation, revolution that's required. Because I don't like, you know, if you're sort of, when you sort of get, start to teeter on that precipice that you're taken to by thinking when you pursue that reparation argument, when you think, oh my God, that would mean the dismantling of the entire uh, Europe as we understand it and the United States of America as we understand it. It also sort of reveals hidden narratives around the way that power transcends nation has continued historically masked by flags and our own willingness to participate in their rituals, whether it's consumer rituals or daft secular holidays. Suddenly all of this is exposed. And I think though, if you're asking people to take on board ideas as radical as you know as simple as radical and seemingly trivial as put down your phone and start caring about little kids down a mine the only way they're going to do that is with some connection to something transcendent and i don't know and and i obviously say this is a white person i was really enjoying the moment mate where i was talking to you about malcolm x i was like there was bits where i was going to contradict you i thought this is good this is good stuff (laughs) professor of black studies now and i'm wading in on the subject of malcolm x (laughs) Kaihindi, I'm going to have to stop you there to say something even more important. And this is that. You know Jermaine uh, out of uh, Fly the Concord, Jermaine Clement, right? Well, now you can listen to two seasons of his acclaimed podcast, The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium, on Stitcher Premium. It's very good, I'm sure. Follow the famous ship, the Jewel of the Gravy Isles, on its mission to find a planet known to be a source of all pleasure in the world, Heaven's Clover. It sounds like no other podcast you've ever heard, with a rich, detailed sound design and original music produced by an outstanding creative team from New Zealand. I've been to that place, and they are very creative. Start listening to The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium now, with a one-month free trial to Stitcher Premium. Ah, that's how... Go to stitcher.com forward slash premium and use the promo code BRAND at the checkout to get your free month. Uh, That's stitcher.com forward slash premium. Use the code BRAND. You'll get it for free. Also, 
What if you could give back while you slept? Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, for every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. Not to mention, Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. But best of all, Lisa's patented universal adaptive feel is designed for all types of sleepers and features free premium foam layers including two inch vena foam top layer for cooling and breathability two inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief and six inch dense core support foam for durability and structure for sleepers of all sizes and available online in the US, UK, Canada and Germany or at the Lisa Dream Gallery in NYC the 100% American made mattress ships compressed in a box to your door so you can save a trip to the store you're just going to get a box of mattress no wonder it's a Forbes top 20 startups to watch if you've received a mattress and have time please give a personal endorsement try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk free with free shipping always and get 80 quid off when you go to leesa.com and use the promo code under the skin all capitals do use that promo code it's good for us that's leesa.com promo code under the skin now it's back to under the skin my feeling is that People are going to need to find a resource that's extremely potent in order to countenance such sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I know the civil rights movement in in its origins, you know, like sort of them early student type protests where them girls got murdered and all that. Right, people. I read a brilliant thing. I think by that Malcolm Gladwell, so it's pretty okay. pop thing. But he yeah. was saying that the kind of allegiances were formed then were sort of local, communal, mm. and tight. And he was. I think it was an essay on how sort of the limitations of social media and how yeah. like you need sort of proper connections. But then people also were Christian and that. Like you know, there were other sort of like there were transcendent belief yeah. systems. Like whereas you said very plainly and overtly there, boldly that religion's not going to do nothing. Well, like I don't feel like. I, you know, I can, I'm, it's very, very evident to me the way that religion is used to sort of categorise, subjugate, yeah. divide, shame and all those things. Yeah. But I feel that, like, as, like, how can we transcend these systems of categorization unless it is by saying there is some essence to the self and some essence to the whole? And well, I mean, I think, like I said, I don't think it's so. Even, even with Malcolm, he says, look, split the two. You couldn't separate his Islam from his, his politics, right? And I think that that does motivate people to do things. I think the key thing is to say that there isn't, one religious answer and I think that's what Malcolm is basically trying to say wow. so if you're a Christian and this motivates you if you're a Muslim this motivates you if you're a Jewish and this motivates you whatever religion you are we use that to motivate you but actually in terms of the program in terms of what we're going to do in terms of where we go next in terms of the alliances that we make religion's right. just going to get in the way on every level right yeah. and separate and saying that look the, the earthly problems that we have are the earthly problems that we have and in some senses blackness the way Malcolm talks about it the way I talk about it has that version of spirituality to it. It has it that other connection to it. But in the same way as that you're saying that M- Malcolm X meant when he was saying religion will get in the way, w- won't ultimately uh, race get in the way? If like if you take your argument of blackness as the motivating um, sort of bond for mm. a sort of a revolutionary movement, where where does that, what's the goal of that? Where does that, like, ta-da, we've won. When, what's the word? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the idea is always like, I guess, if you look at Malcolm's politics, would be revolutionary pan-Africanism, like an, the African Revolution. And, and, and that's kind of when like, you've, you've got rid of Europe and China, et cetera, et cetera, and you've got a different economy and you've got politics, right? Mm-hmm. But that's never, that's never been the end for that politics. Always said, well, look, Africa can't and black people in general can't take part in the global revolution because we ain't got nothing. Like, we don't have anything. We're, we don't, we're, we're, what's the, nobody calls on black people for nothing. 
But when you have a power base, and if you could do this revolution, that revolution could, that would firstly probably undermine Western capitalism to the point it would no longer exist. Uh-huh. But it would give you the ability to to join in with other revolutions and other groups and other and, and support those groups. So the black the black revolution is, if you like, the starting point to the global revolution. But you have to have that black revolution first, I guess. Is the the argument? Yeah, that does sort of make. Why is that? Why would you? Why would it have to start? Because it, it has to be at the level of the most oppressed or most severe. Why? why? Well, I, no, I guess in theory you could say that it could start in China, or it could start other parts of the world. But if we're saying, look, from a from a black perspective, we say, look, this is, and also if you take that logic of the most severe, the worst oppression, there is a strong argument for Africa being that place, and I suppose which may motivate it because of the economic ramifications as well, yeah. like the like if. Africa as a continent says we don't want transnational like all of that we want a clean slate yeah. from that so in a bloody hell when you think about that debt cancellation stuff it's not like a and as an act of largesse we will cancel that debt <laughs> what we give you by nicking your stuff and killing your people it's not like an act of kindness is it the no, debt cancellation it's like in stop insulting adding insult to injury yeah again I keep quoting Malcolm again but he's great on, in the metaphors he says if you if you stab me in the back and then pull out the knife six inches, then I can't, I'm not going to thank you for it. <laughs> that right? good. And that's what debt cancellation effectively is. It's like pulling out the knife six inches. The knife's still there. You haven't done anything. You haven't changed it. Debt cancellation, the debt in the first place was just a neocolonial tool to keep people really? impoverished. And actually, not, so none of the things that the West will ever offer you is really, is, is really solving the problem. You've got to take the knife out and heal the wound. How do you get on with making these arguments outside of academia? How do you get on with uh, young black people that are not within academia, e.g.? How do you convey these kind of ideas? Do, do you? Are you um, able to? Is that yeah, I mean, it's the same. So, like, we started the Harambe Organisation of Black Unity. This is one of the things. Oh. That's the kind of the root of it. Uh, so we took, literally took Malcolm when he died, before he dies, has an organisation of Afro-American Unity as a constitution, which nobody ever talks about, it says, this, this is what you should do. And we said, okay, let's do it. Like, let's just see if, it, see if it works. And so we're working in Birmingham to, get, to talk to people, talk to young people, older people. Uh, we're in an early stage, but you know, we are constantly having these conversations outside campus, on campus as well. And you'll be probably not surprised. People relate to them. People understand them. People get that this, this world doesn't, could never provide for them. That's brilliant because I suppose even if you don't economic, if you don't know it with knowledge, as it were, like in term, information. I mean, if you don't know it with information, somehow you know it. You yeah. know it in your guts. There's something I think in people that resigns. You know, when people talk a lot about political apathy, I think it's like it's not apathy. It's a rational. Oh, that's that thing that's nothing to do with me. <laughs> I don't participate in that. Yeah, and people don't, we haven't given people the opportunity to be involved, particularly in radical politics. In radical politics, I mean, radical has become a bad word in general, right? We throw it around about Islam and terrorism and et cetera, et cetera. But actually what we've done with this is we've completely misunderstood what radical is. So radicalism and, and jihadism or uh, extremism are the complete opposite things, like completely and utterly How? opposite. So extremism is when you take the the basic premise of a society or an idea and you take it way further than it makes any sense to take it right that's 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 what we're having with these terrorists right that's the same as nazis that's the same as christian fundamentalists etc and radicalism is the opposite radicalism you take the fundamentals and you reject them you say well actually i don't want these i i I don't like this so you look at capitalism and you say look now i'm gonna be a marxist or you look at and you say i'm gonna be a radical and you reject it so in a sense you can't actually have radical islam because radical islam would cease to be islam <laughs> we just wouldn't be would be something else so we've completely conflated extremism and radicalism and made radical a dirty word when actually radical that's where we need to be that's where we need to be pushing Ooh. people towards that wasn't a coincidence then you think that that word has been deliberately tarnished yeah 
Because if you think, um, what, 50, only 50 years ago, late 60s, it wasn't, people really underestimate that the fact that we were on the precipice of global revolution. I mean, really, really? if you think of communism in the East, if the African continent, there's massive politics there, South America, there was a, there was a moment where it looked like the West may not win and it may not survive. Wow. And since then, they have just literally destroyed with both violence, physical violence, and also um, symbolic violence, uh, destroyed radicalism. So they told us that radicalism is bad, radicalism is wrong, radicalism is violent, radicalism is all these things, and pushed us away from those radical movements. But really, radical movements are the solution to these, to these problems, the only solution probably to these problems. I understand. So can we criticise some contemporary figures? Yeah, you've got some, like... Uh, proper uh, provocative quotes and stuff mm-hmm. e.g. what about that Theresa May is worse than Donald Trump that's <laughs> was that provocative I just thought it was illogical go on <laughs> then pa- unpack it for yeah. us well and again I say I quote Malcolm again like, literally, literally, like, literally I just quote Malcolm I do quote other people as well but, <laughs> but he always seems to come up that came from a, a paper I've just written literally in a book about um, Malcolm distinguished between the the southern wolf who's kind of bears their teeth and are very aggressive and very openly racist. Mm. And you kind of know they're the problem because they're banging on your head and they'll, they'll shoot you, etc. Uh, but he actually says that worse than the Southern wolf is the Northern fox, who's the tricky, who's cunning, who tell you, tell you everything's fine and there's whisper sweet nothing's into your ear, but really they're just as bad. And if you think about racism at the time uh, in America and the civil rights movement, it was all about the South and it was about, you know, the Southern wolf. It was about segregation. It was about let's, let's, let's get rid of this over... Um, racism. But then in the North, although you haven't got legal segregation, it's, just, it's actually more segregated in the North than it is in the South. Mm. Look at the, look at today, nowadays, look at the police killings. They're usually in the North, not the South. Look at the ghetto. That's the North, often not the South as well. And so even though the North's telling you all these wonderful tales about itself, it's just as bad. And in some ways, it's worse than the South. And so this is the kind of thing I was saying with uh, Theresa May. Donald Trump is the wolf. Very, very clearly, openly, he's, ra- he means he's a ra- white supremacist, racist, obviously, he's quite proud of it. Seemingly, do you think of. it actually is like a white supremacist racist? And that was revealed with that Charlottesville moment, or is there other stuff that? Makes I think it historically, in the nineties, there was a big case in Central Park where there was these um, there was a rape in Central Park, and it and it was it was p- pinned on a group of gang rape. This, these African Americans gang were supposedly gang rape this white woman. Complete lie, complete fabrication. Who was there? Trump championed this myth. Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was there. One of the worst offenders in this uh, Central Park Five rape case. Then you've got. Um, Barack Obama's not not American. Oh, Who yeah, was champion that? Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump was hugely part of that. And now you've got the Muslim ban, you've got Charlottesville, you've got all his... Oh, wise, yeah, no, you look at it, that's very racist. <laughs> and he's just a racist. I mean, Donald racist. Trump is he's, he's a racist. Historically, presently, let's not be surprised. But Theresa May has tried to clothe herself in being... Um, you know, so when she was Home Secretary, she was... Um, the police uh, stop and search. She ordered a review into stop and search. Uh, just the other day, she had all the race anti-racist campaigners in her office around this. Um, let's look talk about racism. Let's tell you the stats that I could have told you the day before. But anyway, we're going to have a big parade about how bad the country is. She likes to pretend that she's she's good on race, but she's terrible. I mean, she's as Home Secretary. Um, if you look at the policy around migration, uh, three thousand pound visas. For people from African countries, denying people entry into the country, letting, I mean, she literally had a policy that said, we're not going to send boats into the Mediterranean to save drowning black people. We're just going to let them drown to deter other black people from coming. I mean, that's a dead Negro policy. That's what she's basically saying. 
right? Mm. And if you, start, if you look at her government policy, look at what she's done around she's terrible on race. But she presents herself as being someone you can talk to, someone you can relate to. That's the northern wolf. And I in like, that way, she's more dangerous. Right. Yeah, I feel that that's correct. I like that um, as a slogan, let's stop overt racism. So let's stop overt racism. <laughs> Is this overt racism? Yeah. We've got to stop yeah. it. Kick yeah. overt racism yeah. out of football. Yeah. I've been much more subtle with yeah. racism now. Yeah, mm. but like overt structural stuff. That's <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> crafty racism. Um, like so, uh, the Donald Trump argument. Uh, there's something like. Gosh, it's not an easy argument for a white person or an English person to make. And I'm both of those things. You're only one of them. So, like, uh, is there something to be said that the the, the grotesque amplification that Trump represents, you know, Southern Wolf argument, that there is something beneficial in that it's an unignorable hideous carbuncle makes me, oh my god we are now confronted with what our society means whereas as long as you had as you said there was a different kind of violence enmeshed in Barack Obama in the concealment and the apparent look see we've got a black president like you know like do, do you think that there is something depending on where it leads to almost um if not positive cathartic about Donald Trump um yeah I say and it might sound controversial but I'd rather have Donald Trump as a president than Barack Obama Honestly, I mean, really, in terms of race issues, it's just clear. It's obvious. It's, it tells you exactly what you need to know about the society. Yeah. Whereas Obama's fronting is making it seem like it's something it's not. And so if you look at the uh, the protests, you look at the movements, you look at people getting angry about things, that's there now. In a way, it wasn't necessarily there. I mean, it's not like it wasn't there completely. I mean, Black Lives Matter emerges under Obama, partly because I think people were like, we've got a black president, shouldn't we expect a bit more? Yes. But I think if you look now, if you look at definitely the rhetoric around America's racist, this is problem, da 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 da, I think you're seeing that come back more. And that's what we need. That's the starting point for the kind of politics that we need. Donald Trump, hero of African America. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I won't go that far. <laughs> but, but yeah, a better president for black. I, was, I will say, and I'll put it on record Donald Trump is a better president for black America than Barack Obama. Wow, that's cool. Because like the thing that seem that sort of where that appeals to me is that, that I think, and this is obviously a personal thing as opposed to a cultural thing for me, is I don't like bullshit. I don't like the feeling that uh, we're not actually dealing with the problem. It's always made me feel uncomfortable and it's made me want to tip over tables. It's made me want to be explosive and to sort of release a kind of shamanic volatility into the atmosphere because I feel like, no, this isn't real. And it's something, it was a personal, it comes from a personal experience, but perhaps there isn't no distinction between personal political experiences on some level. I felt as a kid, this something ain't right. And at yeah. school, I felt this isn't right. Like that, I feel like truth is not being conveyed on a very sort of, practical level like while I was at school feeling like I don't feel like this is a beneficial experience yeah. that I'm having like yeah. you know like I'm just in my little belly so like uh, I would at least like yeah like a sort of like oh right this geezer is an arsehole yeah. like you know like as the president like, right oh I get it now see now pro- power isn't pretending to be your friend anymore yeah. and I don't see how any the only sense of attachment or connection or ad- ad- uh, uh, um, affection that anyone could have with Donald Trump would be like that guy looks like how I feel kind of I feel angry and I don't like life yeah. and he looks like that feeling as a president so you know like I can't imagine how anyone could have any legitimate sense of allegiance don't you feel like what do you feel like with that Charlottesville do you feel like 
oh, I don't suppose you don't feel like it's your problem. But sometimes when I feel like um, when like white people are marching around with tiki torches in Charlottesville or mm. whatever, and it's about a statue or something that seems to me sort of really sort of like, you know necessarily and literally abstract in fact that it's dealing with a symbol, like like your life will not get better if you pursue your argument yeah. to its natural <laughs> conclusion of repatriation or whatever yeah. it is you're into, your personal yeah. life will not improve. How, do, you th- do you not consider that to be part of the argument that is required by, like, say, black unity? Do you see it much more focusing on creating solidarity and momentum? Well, no, I mean, this is the, the counter-argument to the, to the whiteness stuff. You say, well, actually, look, look at the probably a chunk of the people in Charlottesville, a number of the people who vote for Donald Trump, white people... They're not really getting anything out of voting for Donald Trump. No. I mean, and voting for to get rid of your health care. I mean, poor white people make these crazy decisions all the time to actually vote for things which make their situation much, much, much worse, right? And I guess that's the kind of counter-argument to this, this whiteness thing. If you could tell people this and if they could understand this, then maybe they would actually, their interests would be better served uh, with the bigger lot of people, with everybody else, right? With a different kind of politics. The the thing that I've felt for a little while is that the way that power operates is there must be a strata of people and institutions for whom the way that systems operate are not problematic for, for whom the systems are functioning correctly. There's a struggle. No, there is no problem because this is perfect. This is doing yeah. what it's meant to do. Then, right, and I've sort of think, oh, okay, I'm not in that. Then there's another one that's a privileged elite that whether it's like from someone like me that's from an entertainment mm-hmm. background that's like, oh, I'm pretty cool. I'm going to go where I want and do what I want as long as I don't rock the boat, as I found out yeah. when I did rock the boat, actually. And like, um, and then beyond that, it's just various degrees of fucked going down <laughs> and down and down <laughs> till you've got nothing. You know, and, and, I, and I think isn't part of the problem that people, that, that it's very difficult that once you're, you know, both of us in our way are now included in culture in a way that's like, well, that's pretty good. We've got status, power. Yeah. So like that most people go, oh, it don't seem as bad now. <laughs> and like yeah. sort of and, and find it hard to, you know, what was that thing you said about privilege? Uh, divest your privilege. Divest your privilege, yeah. Yes, I, I mean, I th- and I think I think this is this is part of the problem. But I think also it's it's really important to think about if you say there's those layers of people who it's not a problem for, mm. um, I would extend that to more people than probably most people would extend that to. And oh, I think wow. that's important, right? Uh, even the poorest person in this country doesn't deal with child death, really, on a daily basis. Doesn't doesn't have those exclusions. And so there may be problems and there may be huge problems of inequality. But with the politics that we're mobilizing, are we just trying to make it a bit better for people here or are we trying to make it better for everybody? And I think there is a consensus you could come to that say, well, look, you have a bit of rich, you have a bit of poor, we'll equal it out a bit and everybody here will be perfectly happy. But it wouldn't solve the problem for child death and poverty outside. I agree, I agree. And we must be taught to care. Hindi, though, that that argument can be made from the right to demotivate people, I think. Mm -hmm. But even the poorest people in this country, you're doing all right. At least you're not dealing with like some dead kid in a mine. You know, yeah. like anymore. So, like, <laughs> you know, so it's difficult. So, what what do you think? Uh, being an educator, what do you think are the obligations from from uh, the perspective of education? What should we be being taught? The reality of colonialism and of imperialism. Would that what impact would that have? Um, I mean, I think that's important. So, what what is the reality like? What is? I mean, you think about empire, and you think about we don't, people don't know, you can't judge people for what they don't know and unfortunately we don't know the system is terrible at telling us things which are really important so i think teaching about empire just teach just that if you just say well let's teach an honest account of where did britain get its wealth from where does britain sustain its wealth today and understand how the global system works and mm. how the global system privileges us yeah. i think if you could just teach that that would be a starting point yeah but then it would be but i think it's about more than that so for example with the black studies degree uh, that we've started 
we have these arguments, but then we put them into practice. So they say, well, actually, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to mobilize? What does that mean to how you act in the community? How do you, as an, act, as an academic, I can't just be an academic. I have to be an activist. I have to be a member of the community. I have to be building these organizations and doing this work. And really teaching people that they have a responsibility to make this better. That it kind of is our incumbent on us with the privilege mm. to make things better. I think that's important as well. Both of those things are important. The first part, it seems like I can imagine that feeling like a kind of heresy, which makes me recognise again how arbitrary the distinction between what you call, what one calls the religious and what one calls the political, how that line is arbitrary. Because if you are in a school going, right, this is what the British Empire is. We've done this in India, done this in Africa, we've done that in Ireland. And uh, that's how come you can have your Cocoa Pops. <laughs> Enjoy lunch. I like, you know, like that feels like, no, don't say that. That's going to ruin everyone's morale. It's sports day tomorrow. <laughs> right, that's the first thing I wanted to say. And with that Black Studies course, how's it going? And how many people are on it? And is it all black people? Um, yeah, so it's going well. First year, we've got about twenty students, which is what we expected to get was our target to get. Uh, it is actually it is all black people for the first time. Uh, I'm sure in America, African American studies is large, lots of white people, Asian people. It, it takes a while to, to start off. Yeah. What about that woman that? Uh, felt like she was black and that do you remember that story she goes, oh, oh which one is oh, like, oh, is it a common it's idea like, is it? so... I feel like I'm black actually so <laughs> I am <laughs> like, and, like what is that where do we go with that is that interesting because I was at uh, Duke University in May or something and I was giving a talk about blackness etc etc and African American studies department and somebody turned around and said, well, actually, the way you're talking about blackness being this political concept etc etc doesn't that mean Rachel DeLiesel mm. is ah. black and I was shocked. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it because African-American studies, I thought they'd been a bit more nuanced, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> We've not really covered much. We're just sticking to the basics. <laughs> How long is this course? Half hour? <laughs> but um, I think something like that, I mean, I'd, if you're taking, if, 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 what I'm, if my argument is that the, the colour of my skin is important because of the history of it and what it tells about me and what it tells me about the connections into, then you can't just fake that. Like, you can't just make that up. Like, if that's the thing that reunites you politically, then to, to, to pretend is to, to completely not only destroy any concept of, of unity, in a sense. Yeah. So it's, it's utterly offensive. But I would never get really mad about this because you've probably just got mental health problems. I mean, on a real, real level, like, to want to be black, like, to really want to be black, what is that, 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 that takes a particular distorted view of the world. I like the music and the edge, not so keen on the slavery. <laughs> yeah, I see. That's interesting because identity politics can become very divisive in, uh, as well as creating great cohesion and momentum. And this is an odd moment, I feel, around these kind of ideas. And I suppose as a white male, I'm uniquely qualified to pontificate on all facets <laughs> of that. Uh, Kai Hindi, that was an amazing interview. I really, really enjoyed it. I feel properly like educated on a broad area of topics. Plus, we got stuck in with some real populism. I think notably the moment of Donald Trump is a better president for black America than Barack Obama. That's some radicalism right here. Hopefully people will put, people's mothers will put a picture of Donald Trump on their wall after I said that. That's I bet your mum cried when Donald Trump became president and all. She's going to cry when she listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Cheers. This show was sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is a number one bestseller in the United Kingdom, a New York Times bestseller. Go Amazon, get it wherever you are in the world, particularly Ireland, actually. We're not selling enough of them to Irish people. Come on, Irish people. You know I love you. I'm coming to your country soon. Also, come see me on my rebirth tour. 
uh, that's uh, London, 31st and 1st, 31st of October, 1st of November. Remember, I'll be reading my book there, that special recovery event. Imagine coming there, having a book shouted in your face, getting something signed, then having a drink for half hour, then I come back out and start doing all my jokes. Oh, it's going to be great. November the 2nd, I'll be in uh, Nottingham. 8th of November, Coventry, 13th, I'll be in Leicester. Ah, the glory of the Lord. Finally, if you like this show, subscribe to it, review it, give it a five-star review, use unusual language and words, really express yourself in that review. I love you, and we will continue to learn together.